Uh, there's a book that uh, is entitled The Decline of a Nation by Kirby Anderson. And he says that history has shown that the average age of the great civilizations is around 200 years. Countries like Great Britain exceed the average, while other countries like the United States are just reaching the, the age. Uh, each of the great civilizations in the world passed through a series of stages from their birth to their decline or their death. And historians have listed these 10 stages. Now, I would make uh, certainly an exception to the Roman Empire uh, because, well, maybe it did go through those stages, but it lasted a whole lot longer than 200 years. Anyway, the first stage is from bondage to spiritual faith. And the second from spiritual faith to great courage. And the third stage moves from great courage to liberty. The fourth stage moves from liberty to abundance. The fifth stage moves from abundance to selfishness. The sixth stage from selfishness to complacency. The seventh stage from complacency to apathy. The eighth from apathy to moral decay. The ninth from moral decay to dependence. And the tenth from dependence to bondage. Now, um, that is, of course, a, um, an historical analogy and certainly likely true, but I don't think it's of any of, of, of much, much importance as if we analyze it and apply it spiritually. So my question today is, what spiritual stage are you in? What spiritual stage? Now, what stage do we all begin in? We all begin in the stage of bondage and slavery, don't we? We're talking spiritually now. Now, let me give you an example. Let's go over here to John 8 and verse number 34. And notice what Jesus said here. More assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We've all been enslaved, haven't we? Is there anyone who has not sinned? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all start out, we all start out in our whole spiritual experience and spiritual life in a state of bondage, enslaved to sin. Remember, sin is a transgression of the law, and it's evaluated on the basis not of just what we do physically, but what we think and what we do spiritually. Romans 6, verse number 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. It reigns. People are enslaved to their lusts and their passions. I like to think of uh, these various notions that you read all the time by these world leaders that they're going to bring about a utopia on this earth. We're going to have a United Nations that will bring world peace and we'll have a happy, uh, happier future. It's impossible. There's too much against them. What's against them they can't overcome? Two things. Without God's help, human nature and the devil. You don't have God's help, you're not going to overcome those. I don't care who you are. So we've all been enslaved to sin. In verse 16, Paul said, Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are the one slaves whom you obey. And Romans chapter 7, verse number 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. 
Why? We've all been born in the flesh with a human body that's subject to weaknesses of the flesh and sin. That's a condition we're in to begin with. And in verse number 23, Paul said, I see another law in my members warring against the law in my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How am I going to escape it? And Romans 6, verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. We were slaves to sin. So we all start out in a condition of, of spiritual, or, or let's say a bondage. But now, that takes us in the direction of faith, spiritual faith. God came along and intervened somehow. Well, we know he did it by his spirit. And now we're introduced to the whole realm of faith, spiritual faith. Here's what Jesus said. John 1 and verse 12. As many as received him, he gave them the power to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Or as the Greek actually reads here, he gave them the, the power or the right, the right to become children of God. He gave it to them, those who believe on him. And in Romans 10, verse number 17, we read... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So that Word of God has to be introduced to us, and we have to be willing to abide and listen to it, but we're not going to be able to abide and listen to it unless our minds have been opened by God. I read an article in the paper this morning in the religious section. I thought I'd save it some time for a sermon, but <clears throat> the author, who's a, a quote, minister, he was telling how applying the Sermon on the Mount could bring about world peace and end the war in Iraq and all that kind of thing. It's not going to work. Why? You can't live the principles of the Sermon on the Mount without being called of God and having the Holy Spirit. You can have good intentions and you can try. But I can tell you what will happen if you do and the other side doesn't. That's the world in which we live today. That's the real world. So we have to realize that faith comes only by hearing God's word, and that is if God calls us and opens our eyes to understand it. Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. Here's what's required. See, we're talking about, we're talking about spiritual faith. Uh, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Um, let's try Matthew 10 first, verses 30, 37 and 39. Matthew 10, 37 and 39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, how do you do that without a real conviction and with the faith in the strength of God? 
So as we read here in Matthew 16, verse number 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Now you're not going to do that unless you realize what the stakes are. And you can't realize what the stakes are unless God opens your mind to understand what they are. And that means going from when you first became acquainted with the truth, what was, was a major, if not the major, concern in your life? What other people are going to think? That's right. And that has caused more people to stumble when the knowledge of the truth is revealed to them than about any other thing. It takes courage to stand up, to be, be, be sure of your convictions and to take a stand no matter what. And that's where spiritual faith comes in and leads to great courage. Now, once you exercise that kind of courage, what's going to be the consequences of it? Liberty. Great courage to liberty. And that's exactly what Jesus said here. Notice, here, notice it here in John 8, verse number 32. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It makes you free in a number of ways. It frees you from the dominance and rule of human nature over you where you receive enough power to be able to live up to it, and it frees you from all the customs and worries about what other people think. Who cares what other people think? We ought to be a lot more concerned about what God thinks. But most people don't think that way. God is not real to them. That's what the problem is. Verse 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Absolutely. So you see, we receive liberty, and Paul explained it as follows here in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 2. Paul said, The law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. He's been freed now and he has liberty. That comes then as a result of exercising spiritual faith. So we, we uh, spiritual faith, to exercising, we have courage, we receive the courage to live up to it, and that gives us the liberty we're really seeking for. And we're not going to receive that liberty unless we have the courage to live up to it. And in uh, Romans 6, verse number 18, Having been set free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Set free, where it no longer rules you. And in um, verse number 22, Now having been set free from sin, and having become the servants of God, you have your fruit to holiness and end, and the end everlasting life. That's freedom. And Romans 7, verse number 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. But the mind is able to, to dominate. And remember now in James 1, verse 25, what's God's law called? The law of liberty. Freezes. Frees us from the enslavement we have 
being under the influence and power of Satan, concerned about society and what other people think, and our own human lusts and passions that give in and lead us in the wrong direction. All right? What's the consequence then of this liberty? See, I'm making a parallel between the ten uh, stages that nations go through and what we go through spiritually and individually. It leads to abundance. Now, what kind of abundance am I talking about? I'm not talking necessarily about physical abundance. That may or may not be true because that depends on whether or not we really have respect for God's commandments and his laws of tithing and good common sense principles and other things. But let's notice it here in 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. Now what's that mean? That means that the things that were so important to you and made up all the difference in your life no longer are important to you. There are other things that are of far greater value and more important. Now those are the things that God gives us richly. So, Ephesians 1, verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessings. This is what we receive. This is the abundance that we're receiving. And Ephesians 2, verse number 6. As he says in verse 5, We were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a spiritual perspective that we comprehend and understand that was given to us as a result of this abundance we received from God. Did you ever have it before you knew a knowledge of the truth? What was the most important thing in your life 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago? How important is it today? You see, Jesus said, if you gain the whole world... What value is it if you're going to lose your own soul? Your single soul, if I can use that term loosely, we understand what that means, is of a greater value than the whole world in God's eyes. Now, one of the most important things that's taken place, and this is why I said a few minutes ago that you can read these articles by these clergymen and they'll say, we just have to apply the principles of the Sermon on the Mount and we'll solve the world's problems. Men cannot apply the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. How difficult is it for us who are converted and have an understanding of God's truth to apply the principles of the Sermon on the Mount? To love your enemies. Do we have that kind of love where we can love our enemies? You know, Jesus listed all these things that are involved in this Sermon on the Mount, and then you know what he said at the end? It's very poorly translated in the King James Version. It should be translated. If you can do all these things, then you're like your Father, which is in heaven. If you can do them. But you can't do them without God's help. So here's, here's what takes place. This is abundance I'm talking about. This is in Hebrews 8, verse number 10. 
This is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it in their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. The only people who have really received an insight of the laws in God's heart and mind are those who are converted and have God's spirit. The world doesn't. It can't. Now, that doesn't make you superior. That doesn't make you better. I tell you what it does. It puts a whole lot more responsibility on you. But you see, that's going to lead to some of the next steps coming up here because this is what can, can take place if one is not careful. So this is what I'm saying here. This is, the, this is the steps that nations go through. Can you go through these steps as an individual? You can. Here's the next one. You have this abundance that God gives you, and then the next step is selfishness. Getting selfish over it all. Nations have a great abundance, and then they get selfish. Take the Roman Empire, for example. Now, Julius Caesar was probably a genius. I don't think people, most people recognize the, the skill and the ability that this man had. And he said one time, with money, we'll get men. And with men, we'll get money. And he went up to Gaul and he conquered Gaul and killed a million people. He looted Gaul, became filthy rich, and the Roman Empire was built on slavery. It lasted what? Well, the Republic started around 300 BC, and uh, Caesar then pronounced himself the dictator shortly before the AD, I'll uh, say about a, roughly, I'll just say a let's say 100 AD or 100 BC, somewhere right in that time period. Then it lasted till 500, 500 AD. It was one of the most wicked empires of depredation that ever lived on the face of this earth. And yet, were they concerned about what they did to other nations? I'll tell you what the Romans were like. They were great tacticians militarily. They were great builders, and they had great skill in engineering things of all kinds. Some of the roads that the Romans built are still used today. And you could start out from Constantinople and go all the way to the English coast, perfectly safe the entire way because the Roman Empire ruled so well and their roads were so well organized and guarded. But what they do to the people they conquered. As long as you paid your taxes, and went to bed early at night, you got along fine. But you didn't pay your taxes and you got a little bit out of line, you'd see what would happen. And that's exactly what happened to people. So this is what we have. We had this nation that became so fabulously rich on the abuse and the, the terrible wickedness they perpetrated on others and they were utterly selfish among themselves. These emperors would, in order to to curry favor with the public, would take this monies, these monies that they had looted and, and stolen and killed from other nations and build these big projects. Give all these things to the people to keep themselves in office. Oh, does that sound familiar today? We're just doing it the same way to more of a smaller scale among individuals. Selfishness. Now, one of the characteristics of our time period, and this isn't only the United States, but this is the whole world. 
And certainly it applies to the United States and our nation. We want to be sure it doesn't apply to us because once we receive the knowledge of the truth, somehow we sometimes think we're special, we're better than other people. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of themselves. I won't read all of these. Unthankful. You know, they figure the world owes them a living. And this is what happens to people. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judged us that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all. And here's the point I want to get at because this is what we've got to understand when it comes to this matter of being self-centered and selfish and thinking we're somehow special. We're only special in the sense we've been given a greater responsibility right here now before other people have. And we better not blow it. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So your whole life is centered on living for Christ. And when you're living for Christ, what does that mean? It means you're doing and following the example that he set and obeying what the scriptures tell you. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own. It's, a, it's amazing to me. I mean, I've seen people do this in the past time and time again. And there will be some little petty thing that they want or some little petty thing that is their notion. And they'll throw everything away because they don't get their way on that. They just discard the truth of God and everything else becomes that becomes a paramount thing in their minds. Let no man seek his own. But each one the other's well-being. Now, if we thought along those lines, we wouldn't have time to be self-centered. And Philippians 4, Philippians 2, verse number 4, that each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It doesn't mean you can't have interest, but you better be concerned about the interests of others as well. So uh, this, this, uh, this abundance can lead to this kind of selfishness, this self-centeredness and this selfishness. And once selfishness sets in, then what takes place? Self-satisfied and being complacent, taking it for granted. How many people have I seen after a number of years take the truth of God for granted? You know, here's a good example, Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse number 16. He spoke a parable unto them, saying, A ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. There I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for you many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, he couldn't think that maybe he had a responsibility that that could be used wisely for the benefit of other people. He could only think of himself, and he became complacent. 
Jesus said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. So you see, that's one example. Now in John 8, verse number 33. John 8, verse number 33. Jesus said, here he was, was contending with these religious leaders of his day here, scribes and Pharisees. And here's what they said. This was their attitude. You know, they would not accept Christ. Why would they not accept Christ? Because they were smug and complacent in what they thought belonged to them. And there's a segment among the Jewish people to this day, I don't know which particular group involves that this involves, but they have the notion that nobody but the Jews can have the, have the truth of God. Nobody else is allowed to have it. Here's what, here's what they said. We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. Yeah, we're special. We don't need any, anything new. We're satisfied. We don't need any new truth. We don't need any new application. We're fine the way we are. And that's the way people are at the truth. They understand certain things, but they don't progress any further because they're satisfied with what they get, with what they have. You know, it's just a matter of knowing the truth. I'll tell you where the real struggle comes in. It's living a godly life and overcoming the pulls of your human nature. That's where the real struggle is. You know, you look at this church here in Revelation. This is a typical example of what I'm talking about. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Oh, isn't that the way sometimes people feel? But you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Yeah. You know, what people think and what the real facts are may be two different things altogether. And as we read in Proverbs 13, verse number 7, this little uh, statement here, I think, uh, pretty well summarizes the condition of people who become complacent. And this is Proverbs 13 and verse number 7. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing. Nothing that really counts. So they become complacent. Now, what does complacency lead to? Apathy. Just nothing but complete inaction. Apathetic. Notice Matthew 25, verse number 18. Matthew 25, verse 18. Here were the various men who were given the talents, weren't they? And here's one who received one. And what did he do with it? He who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. He wouldn't do anything with it. Now, he used the excuse that he was fearful. But his Lord, and unfortunately, there's not a question mark put there when it states, oh, you say I'm a fearful, you say I'm a, you know, whatever word it is. Uh, hard man and uh, reaping where you have sown and gathering where you have not scattered. Question mark, oh, that's what you say? What he's saying is that if you, really, if you really felt that way and you really thought that way, why didn't you do something? He was apathetic. 
paralyzed, unable to do anything. And this is what happens when people get in this frame of mind. Malachi 1. Here's a good example of how it's done religiously, spiritually. Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I them am the father, where's my honor? And if I'm the master, where's my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, what way have we despised your name? Here's how they do it. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, quote, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, God says, the temple of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is this not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is this not evil? Yeah, they're apathetic. I wonder if any of us are apathetic. You know, I don't know why it is that people have the idea that if you're in a group or you're in a church or you're associating with family members or somebody else and because nobody boots you out the door that you're perfectly acceptable with God. Let's not be deluded. Every single man is going to answer for himself before God. And as Paul said, the husband cannot save his wife. The wife cannot save the husband. It's going to be an individual choice. And we cannot allow apathy to set in. You look back at those early, early men that dwelled on this earth that the Bible so strongly condemns. And what does it say about them here? It says in Romans 1, verse 21, Though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Foolish hearts were darkened. That's what happened to them. Hebrews 10, verse number 38. Hebrews 10, verse number 38. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Yeah, you get apathetic, that's what'll happen. You know that's what's happened spiritually to this nation. Take England and that example I read to you about this new Bible that the Archbishop approves of. What kind of condition is a church in that allows that kind of thing and touts it? And look what goes on in this country today. Do you hear anybody really preaching the truth? What would happen if somebody got up and said the words that I'm saying right now here to the American public? Yeah, you'd be lucky if you got out of there alive. I can tell you one thing, by the time the media get done with you, you'd be called everything under the sun. A madman, crazy, insane, cult, you name it. They don't give a hoot about the truth. So we need to realize that we're in a state of apathy and we're in, we're in the next state because what does apathy lead to? This is the condition we're in right now. Moral decay. Moral decay. Is the church in that kind of a state today? 
Well, you look what happened to worldwide back in the beginning of the 1970s, and you look at all these groups today. Anything goes. They're watered down, and these people are just as dead as they are. That's what's happened. Apathy. Notice Isaiah 30, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 30, verses 9 and 10. This is a rebellious people. You know, I get these emails all the time. Not so much anymore, but uh, occasionally I'll get one. And if they're from a worldwider or an ex-worldwider, any one of these other splits out there, you know what they'll be doing? Arguing. Wanting to get in an argument. I usually answer them. They don't have much to say after that. If I get emails from outside people who are first becoming acquainted with the truth, boy, they're, they're really anxious. They're very, very appreciative and thankful to get it. A big difference. Because I can tell you the church is going very rapidly into a state of moral decay too. And I'm using that term very broadly. I can just include churchianity in general as well as the church of God. Yes, this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. <coughs> who say to the seers, see not. And to the prophets who do not prophesy unto us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Yeah, I can tell you one thing. If they heard the real truth of God, they would be offended. The vast majority of these people in this world today in the United States, they would be highly offended. I've had people who have come from some of these other groups attend our group and they don't like it. They don't want to hear it anymore. You know what they say? It's too strong. It's too strong. Well, moral decay, spiritual decadence is saying, and it's just like we read here in a, in a literal sense as far as Israel is concerned, but certainly spiritually the same thing is true. Uh, as far as the church is concerned, and it could affect us. And this is what we read here in Isaiah 1, verses 5 and 6. Why should you be stricken again? Here's the answer. You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed up or bound up or sued with ointment. Yeah. Pretty well describes the condition today, doesn't it? The United States is a good case in point. I wish I'd have brought that article I had on the survey that was recently conducted on moral issues in the United States and just to show you how people feel. There's still a strong percentage of them, a vast majority of them, that, feels, that feel adultery is wrong. But it's divided about half and half between homosexuality and fornication. Now, when you have a nation where half the population thinks fornication and homosexuality are all right, what condition are we in? Moral decay. Jeremiah 2, 22. 
though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap. Yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. How can you say I'm not polluted? I've not gone after the Baals. Well, you know, there's all kinds of gods that people take up with, isn't there? That's why you read here in the book of Hosea 4. Verses 1, uh, Hosea 6, uh, uh, yeah, Hosea 4, verses 1 and 2. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Look at the media. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Pretty well describes our country, doesn't it? I mean, you listen to the media, and I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a good thing or a proper thing. We've lost about a, we've lost less than a thousand men in this whole thing in Iraq. City of Detroit, Michigan has more than a thousand killed every single year. That's just Detroit. What about cities like Los Angeles and New York who have a murder every single day? You don't hear a big squawking about that, do you? What about thousands of people that are killed in motorcycle, I mean in automobile accidents every single year in this country? Do you hear a great big hue and cry about that? Page after page, headline after headline, day after day? I'll tell you, this media is going to have a lot to answer for. So we go from moral decay, where do we go next? About the condition we're in this United States? To dependency. Live off the taxpayer. Live off the dole of someone else. Get involved in all these government entitlement programs because somebody else is paying. And this is the thing we need to realize. I don't care what kind of an organization you're in. If, you, if you're in that organization, somebody is paying for it. If you're not, somebody else is. And the big problem with government is that they've got the notion that the money, all monies that people earn, belongs to the government. It doesn't belong to the government. It belongs to the people. But they feel they've got every right, especially these liberal types. They think they've got every right to take your money from you, your hard-earned money that you work, and give it to somebody who hasn't. Is that dependency? You bet it is. Now, that can apply spiritually, too. Because you can get to the place where you just rely on somebody else for your spiritual development, for your spiritual growth. And you're not putting in the effort yourself. Notice Luke 16, verses 1 through 9. This is a good example right here, what I mean. There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. He was irresponsible. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. So he fired him. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I resolve what to do. And when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So what did he do? 
ingratiated himself to these people so he could depend on them. Isn't this what politicians do? Isn't this what has happened in the nation today? Now stop and think about it spiritually. Somebody else is reaping all the labor. I mean, somebody else is doing all the labor and we're reaping the rewards. Isaiah 9, verse 16. Isaiah 9 and verse 16. The leaders of this people cause them to err. And those who are led by them are destroyed. Now if you have a whole philosophy, a whole socialistic philosophy in this country, which is what we have today. Do you think it isn't going to affect you as an individual? And do you think to a certain degree and a certain extent that's going to be a part of your thinking even in a, in a church situation? Take from the haves and give it to the have-nots. Buy votes. That's what government entitlement programs are. Both parties are guilty of it. Only the liberal left wing is a lot more guilty of it than the right wing. But they're both guilty of it. To buy votes by offering all kinds of programs and entitlements to get people to vote for them. Isaiah 1, verse number 23. Your princes are rebellious. The companion of thieves... How much actually goes on if we knew the truth about bribery, taking bribes? I hear some of these decisions that are made on some of these cases of judges, and I shake my head. I have to say there's only one reason that could have been done. He took a bribe. Somebody bought him off. So here's what we read. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards what they can get out of it. You know, you need to realize when you live in a society like that and that's the whole attitude of the society, it will affect you. You'll begin just to accept that as a normal and that'll be a part of your spiritual life too. And that's a dangerous thing to get into. Proverbs 17, verse number 23. A wicked man accepts a bribe in secret. New International Version says that. Accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. Oh, yeah. Backroom deals. Don't think that doesn't go on. Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 7. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. You know, there are people that are just absolutely adept at working the system. They'll get in on one government program after another and just live by that means. Somebody else is footing the bill and doing the labor. 
Well, let's not be guilty of that. Think about that when it comes to the matter of tithing. Now, the last thing, dependency to bondage. You get in a condition of dependency, what's that going to lead to? Bondage. Right back to where you started from. Spiritual bondage. And that's what happens to nations, and I can tell you that's what happens to people. You know, I don't think anybody ever fell away from the truth. Just one moment they believed the truth, the next moment they didn't. It's a process. Sets in over a period of time. And usually starts out with some little minor thing that begins to build up. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even, even weeping. Now here's what Paul said. Many walk. Now what does that tell you? These were people who once understood the truth. And they did this in Paul's day. They did it to Paul. Why should we, we think they won't do it today? Many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. The physical things in this life, they come right back enslaved to the desires and pulls of the flesh. And that's a condition they're in. 2 Peter 2.20 2 Peter 2.20 If they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. That's what happens. All right, to make it even worse, there's a pretty sober warning here in Ephesians 6. Verse 4, it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they shall fall away. It is impossible, what he's saying here is, to renew them to, again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now you know something? When people do that, they never think they're doing it. They'll justify what they're doing and they'll convince themselves in their own mind that they're doing the right thing. But you know, it's like I said, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what we think. We'd better be sure what God thinks. And just keep in mind, what happens to physical nations, that's important as far as this physical world is concerned and physical lives are concerned, but I can tell you that's not nearly as important as what can happen spiritually as in, to an individual. Because just remember what Jesus said. Your life is of a greater value than this whole world. 